Well, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series called Life in the Spirit, and today is our very last sermon in this series, and uh, so we've been looking at the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to look at the very last one, and, uh, and then we're going to move on to a different series next week. Uh, we're going to do one called The Invisibles, and we're going to do it during uh, sort of the, the Thanksgiving and Christmas season to just sort of think about who are the invisibles in our midst, and we're thinking about those people that God sees that maybe we don't seize. Seize. We don't seize them. Seize them. Um, somebody thought that was funny. Uh, these are, uh, Jesus called these people the least of these, and so we're going to think about uh, how we can spend the holiday season seeing people that God sees. Uh, but for now, we're at the, with the end of this series called Life in the Spirit. Now, the premise of this series is that there is a vast and crucial difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. So there's something very different between someone who is restraining their will versus someone whose heart is being supernaturally changed by the Holy Spirit. And we've been going through the, the fruits of the Spirit. And if you want to think about the fruit of the Spirit this way, these are marks of a supernaturally changed heart. So Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit, joy, love, peace, patience, these are all marks of what it looks like when, when the Holy Spirit is in us, transforming us. And so we've looked at all the different fruits of the Spirit. Today we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. Uh, so we're going to end the series by looking at this, this vital fruit, self-control. Now there's someone in our congregation that whenever I preach a sermon that is convicting, he always says, Brent, you weren't preaching today, you were meddling. And uh, today I think I'll probably be doing that. I think I'll probably be stepping on a lot of your toes and uh, when I talk about self-control, I'm actually stepping on my toes too, uh, you know, because if you think about your, your uh, week this past week, how many of us struggled with self-control? Uh, helping professionals, uh, pastors, counselors, medical doctors, we, uh, they learn very quickly in their career that self-control is probably a bigger problem than anybody thinks. There's a lot of people that are out of control in their lives. And, and self-control and being the problem of self-control is when you're doing something that you desperately want to stop, but you can't. There's enormous amount of people that are doing something that they don't want to do. Maybe you're one of them. And when you think about it, think about, you know, we think about self-control as in the classic addictions like uh, drugs or alcohol um, overeating, undereating, uh, consuming, and things like that, you know, the, the classic addictions. But I also want to think about all the different ways that we struggle with self-control. There's the, the, the problem we have with controlling our tongue. You know, many of us, we get angry and words fly like weapons, and we're trying to rein them in, but we have such a hard time doing that. Or there's the, the, the struggle we have with controlling our thoughts, especially in the age of the digital age where we have social media and iPhones that are distracting us and, and it's so hard to have a coherent uh, you know, thought for any length of time because of, of the age we live in. We have trouble controlling our thoughts. We have tr trouble controlling our emotions. And there's many of us, we're driven by fear. Well, all the choices we make are driven by fears and anxiety because we can't control our, our emotions. There's some of us that have trouble controlling our time. You know, we, we know we need to plan ahead and make a schedule, but our time is sort of out of control. Every single week, we're trying to catch up. And so think of the enormous trouble that all of us have with, with this uh, self-control in our lives. The book of Proverbs is uh, it's a wisdom, a piece of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and they talk about what it means to be a wise person. 
And Proverbs says that the, the wise person has self-control. In fact, there's one proverb that says that a person without self-control is like a city that's broken down without walls. And so if we don't learn self-control, like we're vulnerable, we're open to attack, we're weak. We're in danger of being destroyed. And if we don't learn self-control, our, our problems with it will end up stripping us of our careers, our goals, our families, our relationships. So we need to learn how to get a hold on this, this idea of self-control. Paul says it's a fruit of the Spirit. One of the things the Spirit wants to do when, when he comes into our lives is, is help us rein in and get control of our emotions and our, and our impulses. And today I want to look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 9. And this is, you know, when you think about self-control, it's important to get an image of what we're talking about. And here in 1 Corinthians 9, we have an image of a man who's developed self-control, enormous self-control. And I'm talking about Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle is one of the three or four people that uh, was one of the most, uh, you know, three or four most influential people in the history of the world. Right, he wrote pages of the New Testament. He was enormously productive. He had had this self-control in his life. And and here Paul gives us a window into what it looks like to develop self-control. And as we look at the passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to see, number one, what is self-control? That's what we see here. Number two, how it works, and then finally, how we get it. So what is self-control, how it works, and how we get it? We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. And so let's look at it here, uh, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave or I bring it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the first thing we see here is what is self-control? Paul here uses a, a master illustration He uses it all the way through the New Testament. He compares his life to that of an athlete. Now, this is in Corinth, and in Corinth they had something called the Isthmian Games. And these were part, it was the second largest event in the Panhellenic Games, second only to the Olympics. And in the ancient world, uh, the ancient Greeks, they prized uh, athletic ability. They prized this this ability that athletes have to to discipline their bodies and to win at athletics. And, And so Paul says, When you think about self-control, think about uh, an Olympic athlete. And he says, an Olympic athlete has self-control in all things. He uses the word self-control. In Greek, it's the word egokratia. We all say that. Egokratia. Lego my egokratia. And uh, it's two two different Greek words. I know, it was bad, right? (laughs) It was bad. Uh, Ego meaning self, kratia meaning rule. And so what is self-control? It is self-rule. It is self-command. The image is of a king and a kingdom. Think of your your life as a king and a kingdom. A king has command. The king has rule. The king has authority over his subjects. And a person with self-control has command, has rule or authority over his or her impulses, over his or her desires. This is self-control. And in the history of, 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 uh, of Western thought, you know, if you look at the history of Western civilization, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, this was a time where self-control was something that was very important. 
Uh, you know, uh, Plato, Aristotle in his ethics, Cicero, they all, they all viewed self-control as one of the four cardinal virtues. And for them, uh, self-control was something that, that, made, that was unique to human beings. It was something that made us human. It was something that gave us dignity and worth. And so think about the animal kingdom. The, you know, animals, they, they give in to their impulses, they give in to their drives. But humans have this unique ability to be more than our impulses, to be more than our urges. And so self-control, one of the four cardinal virtues, for them it was something that gave us dignity. It, it, uh, held, it, it was something that, that made us distinct as human beings. And for the ancients, self-control was something that would gave us freedom. Uh, you know, you think about self-command. Someone who's got... Uh, Self-control actually has the ability to make real choices in their life. They're not a slave to their impulses. They're able to decide what they want to do and discipline their bodies and their emotions and their urges and do the thing that they most want. And so self-control, according to the ancients, was something that, that gave us freedom. Now I want you to compare that to our culture today. I mean, our, our belief in our culture today is almost the exact opposite. Our view of freedom is, is almost the absence of self-control, the absence of all constraints. Uh, you know, I've told you before about the little girl in our high school uh, ministry at, the, at my old church. She came to us one day and she said, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to do what I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And so for her, freedom was to do whatever she wanted to do in the moment. But the ancient Greeks, they would say, no, um, think about it for a little bit. The person who does whatever they want with whomever they want, however they want, ends up being a slave to whatever they're feeling in the moment. And so for the ancients, they would say self-control is freedom. Self-control is dignity. Someone who exercises self-control is able to become more human, more themselves than they were without it. Without it, you're, you're almost a slave to your impulses. You're in beast mode, maybe. Just like the animal kingdom, it's, it, self-control makes us human. And self-control, it assumes two things. It, number one, assumes the presence of something within us that needs to be bridled. It assumes that there probably are some desires, there probably are some impulses in you that you ought to rein in, that you ought to bring in a little bit, that you ought to bridle. And that it also assumes that we as humans have the power, uh, we have access to power to enable us to bring these things in. This is self-control. And when you think about a self-controlled person, a self-controlled person is someone who has incredible depth. I think all of us want this, don't we? We all want the ability to rein in some of our impulses. You know, and I think that when you look at a mature person of depth, it's a person of self-control. I was reading an article by David Brooks. <clears throat> David Brooks, uh, he writes articles in the New York Times, and he writes a lot about morality, especially in our age of of you know, enslaved impulses and doing whatever we want. And he talks about self-control. He wrote this article called The Deepest Self. And he says a self-controlled person is a deep person. Here's what he says. In conversation, when we say that someone is a deep person, we mean that they've achieved a quiet, dependable mind by being rooted in something spiritual and permanent. Depth is something we cultivate over time. We form relationships that either turn the core piece of ourselves into something more stable and disciplined or something more fragmented and disorderly. Babies are not deep, but old people can be depending on how they have chosen to lead their lives. 
The people we admire are rooted in nature, but have surpassed nature. So David Brooks is saying kind of the same thing I'm trying to argue here, is that a human, someone who's really human, and develop some measure of depth and maturity is someone who is more than their impulses. They're more than their desires. They're able to have some level of self-command. I want you to think about it this way. Think about something in your life that you're proud of. Think about something, you know, something in your life that you've achieved. You know, some, maybe it's an award that you got, you know, through athletics, or maybe it's a marriage that you've been in for 40 or 50 years. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's some level of career success that you've gotten. I would wager that probably the thing that, I don't know what you're thinking of in your brain, but I would wager the thing that you're thinking of needed some level of self-control. You obtained it by refusing to do what you wanted to do in the moment. And so I think that all of us would probably agree with the ancients, the ancient, Greece, uh, the ancient Greeks and, and Paul the Apostle in seeing the deep value of having self-command. It brings depth, brings freedom. You know, most of the things that we're proud in in life come because we were able to achieve some measure of self-control. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. And so we all have urgent things coming upon us, desires and urges and situations. And self-control is able to choose, is the ability to choose the important over the urgent. And so self-control, uh, it implies some level of delayed gratification, right? You're able to say no to the immediate thing in order to get something in the long run, right? So you need to take the long view to get self-control. It's saying yes to the important and no to the urgent. Here's another definition of self-control. Self-control is our ability to rule over our impulses in pursuit of a greater good. And all disciples of Jesus need this. You know, Jesus, when he told, when he called, when he, think about disciple. What is, what is the root of disciple? The root of disciple is discipline. And so someone who's having success at following Jesus, someone who's following Jesus as one of his disciples, needs to learn self-control, self-discipline. It's the root of the word disciple. If you look at all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, man, you need self-control to develop all of those things. Think about patience. You need self-control to, to rein in your anger, your impulsion. Think of peace. You need to have self-control over your anxiety. And so are you seeing the importance? Are you seeing the need for self-control? And we struggle with it. And so let's ask the second question, which is how does self-control work? Uh, self-control is vital for disciples. It, it's, what, it's the definition of freedom. It's how we develop depth. How do we get self-control in our own lives? Well, look at, Paul, look at Paul's metaphor. He says, I want you to think about self-control. An athlete gets self-control, but he says, how does the athlete get it? How does it work? How does an athlete's self-control um, work in, in, in his or her life. He says, well, think about an athlete. An athlete develops self-control first and foremost by developing an overriding passion or desire. You know, a lot of times we think about self-control is mind over the emotions, right? Mind over matter. It's saying, just say no. It's, you know, using your will and clamping down on your desires, but think about an athlete. How does an athlete develop self-control? An athlete develops self-control by getting a higher desire, by developing a deeper passion, 
by getting an overriding, you know, maybe think of it as a joy or a vision. Self-control starts with getting a vision. And so for the athlete, what is the vision? The, the vision is the prize. You know, at some point, you know, the athlete had that vision in their mind. I, I can see myself on the podium. I can see myself up there wearing the, the wreath. I can see the crowd cheering and my biceps flexing, maybe. They get that vision in their mind, and it motivates them to develop incredible levels of self-control. You know, you think about an athlete. What gets that athlete out of bed in the morning? When the alarm goes off, what keeps the athlete from pushing snooze? Why does she tear herself out of bed? Well, she has that vision. You know, what keeps the athlete resentfully gnawing on that celery stick and not eating the delicious, delectable chocolate pudding? Pudding? <laughs> Ice cream? Well, she has the prize. What keeps the athlete up late at night, out on the field or out on the track, uh, running and exercising and saying no to all sorts of things. You see, it's the vision they have. It's this overriding passion and desire. This is where self-control starts. In order, think about it in your own life. Where do you want self-control? It always begins with a vision. It always begins with an overriding joy and desire. You know, think about, uh, you know, I think about my own life when I, when I was uh, dating Anita. I was kind of a slob before I dated Anita. Hard to believe, I'm still kind of a slob, even after marrying Anita. Sorry, Anita. And, uh, but when I met her, she was, she captured, I had this vision, she captured my heart. I had this overriding passion to get Anita. And lo and behold, what happened? Suddenly my car was clean. And I was, you know, exercising every day. And I was, you know, getting my hair cut. You see, self-control always begins with, with your heart being captured by something you deeply want. Think of a, an elderly person, 60 year, 60, is that elderly enough, 60 years old, 60, 80 years old, I'm sorry. That was the funniest part of the sermon, wasn't it? This person, 65, 70 years old, they're, they're exercising and they're, they're eating right, and, and what motivates that person? Well, maybe they get a vision of, I want to be around for my, grandpa- my grandchildren. I want to be out there dancing and playing and roughhousing with the children. And in order to do that, I need to, you see, they get, they get a vision in their brain that they're captured by something that is their joy, and so it disciplines other parts of their lives. With self-control, there's, there's a greater passion in play. You're not just saying no to something, you're saying yes to the greater thing. The joy of that prize far outstrips the lesser joys that might get in the way of you achieving that goal. It is joy that drives self-control. It's the greater pleasure bringing order to our chaotic and often conflicting lesser pleasures that bring self-control. And so what is your overriding passion? What is the thing that you're living for? You know, the Bible calls this worship. What is the thing that you're worshiping? You will give yourself to control, you will give yourself effortly to that thing that is your overriding joy. And self-control always begins by identifying what is it that I want more than anything else? What is my prize? What's captured my heart? That's where it begins. Do you have that? 
Well, notice also this prize, it's, it's not just getting a prize, but getting the right prize. Your overriding passion and joy, this prize must be something that lasts. Okay, you've got to get the right prize in order to be self-controlled in all the right areas. Notice what Paul says here. He says, look at the athlete. The athlete has the prize in mind, but what else, what kind of a prize, it, it, they fight for this prize that perishes. And so think about the illustration. You know, the, in the ancient, the Panhellenic Games, the athlete, they, they, uh, they competed for the laurel wreath. And the laurel wreath was something that it certainly didn't last. It was made out of uh, leaves and plants, and so if you got it and you put it on your mantle at home, it would become brittle, and it would literally uh, you know, fade away in your hands. And Paul says, as a Christian, I am looking at my, my passion is something that lasts. It does not fade away. And so to get self-control in all things, number one, you need to have a vision. What is it that you want? What is it that you worship? And it's got to be the right thing. It's got to be an infinite thing. You know, many of us have passions that are finite, and they, those things make us disciplined. I mean, think about a person who's, whose passion is their job or their career. And that career will make them disciplined in a lot of areas of their lives. But what happens when the career begins to crumble? Suddenly, there's all sorts of other areas of your life that become out of control. And some of you may have experienced this. Your career begins to crumble and suddenly you're, you're um, self-medicating with drugs or alcohol and you're out of control maybe in your personal life. In order to get the right sort of self-control, we need to have a prize or a vision or an overriding desire that is infinite. It's got to be beyond this world. Or self-control is never gonna work. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, he's, a, he's the author who wrote War and Peace. And War and Peace was this phenomenal success. It, was, it put him on the map in terms of uh, great uh, authors in, of literature in the history of the world. And it, he immediately was famous, he immediately was wealthy, and he also immediately fell into a funk because he realized he didn't have the right prize. And here's what he said. He says, if today or tomorrow, and he, this is what he asked, begins to ask questions like this, if today or tomorrow sickness and death will come to those I love and to me or, or to me, and nothing will remain but stench and worms, sooner or later my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten. I shall not exist then why go on making any effort? For man to be able to live, he must have an explanation of the meaning of life that gives the finite existence of man an infinite meaning, a meaning that cannot be destroyed by sufferings, deprivations, or death. What's he saying? He's saying in order for us to order our, all of our other passions, we need to have a vision for our lives that's infinite. Now, what is that? Well, that's God. That's, the, it, that's sanctification. It's becoming like Jesus. It's getting a vision of your mind of the you that's gonna last into all eternity, loving God and worshiping God and becoming like God. And so self-control begins with a vision. It's a vision that's gotta be something that lasts, but it also is a vision. It's gotta be an overriding passion that is vivid to our senses. And this is a really important piece. You will get self-control when you have a vision for your life that is infinite, but it's also got to be vivid to your senses. And so often, this is where self-control fails us. Because we know what we want, we know what's important, we know the reason for life, but so often, this thing becomes not as vivid as it should be. 
<clears throat> I think about my own life. And uh, when I was younger in seminary, I had trouble with gaining weight. I've always had issues with overeating, and uh, I'm a short man. There's not a lot of room for that fat to go, and so I, I put it on fairly easily. And when I was in seminary, uh, the, the worst thing that they could have done for my spiritual health, they had donuts in the common room every day. And so every day I would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but in between breakfast and lunch, I'd go into the common room and eat a donut. Maybe two. <laughs> Maybe three. Every single day. Now, when you do that every single day, it adds up. And I remember vividly, there, there was this moment where I went home to California for, I think it was for a funeral, and there's a picture. Someone took a picture of me and my brother standing next to each other. Me and my brother were the same height, and we used to be the same width. But in this picture, I was, I was fat. <laughs> and that just burned in my brain. I mean, it was vivid. That was technicolor on my brain. And so when I went back to seminary the next year, I stopped eating the donuts. You see, I gained some measure of self-control because of that picture that was vivid, vivid on my brain. And so this overriding passion, it's got to be vivid to your senses if you're going to develop self-control. And what happens is in the moment, what you know is important, it's not like you stop believing in that, it's just that something else becomes more vivid. And so after church uh, a couple weeks ago, I went into my office to go get all my books, and uh, the, there's a small group that meets in there, and they always buy donuts. And so I remember looking at the donuts, and I passed by them, and I, you know, I, the picture of my old self, you know, way back in seminaries was sort of faded, but what was on Technicolor? Oh, the donuts, there they were, somebody's cruel joke. And they put them there right in the entrance of the office, and I looked over, and you'll be happy to know that I didn't eat a donut. I just took one bite out of all 12 of them, and I called it a day. <laughs> but in that moment, the, the issue wasn't that, that, I, that I didn't believe in, you know, the value of having a healthy body, and I, I, I thought instead that that sugar rush was more important. That wasn't the issue. It's that... The donuts were on Technicolor. Think about this. The donuts were on video, and the overriding joy of my life was on audio. And in order to develop self-control, your passion and your desire and your reason for living and what you, must, that you most want needs to be the most vivid thing to your senses in that moment. And so for a Christian, the way we develop self-control is reminding ourselves and keeping that thing right in front of our face. Uh, keeping on, on, on video and technicolor the things that are most important, the thing that we worship, the one that we worship. But notice uh, Paul's self-control also came not from just developing this vision and fostering it and feeling it, but it also involved hard work. This is another piece of self-control. In order to develop self-control, you need to work at it. You need to have that vision. I mean, that's got to be there, but you've got to take that vision and, and you need to begin to apply it to various individual areas of your life. You've got to work. One of my favorite quotes is by Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to, to effort. It's opposed to earning. You know, grace is, it's opposed to earning, right? None of us earn our salvation by working hard. But once you are saved, you need to work hard. And none of us gets a good marriage. 
And none of us becomes good parents. And none of us becomes thin and uh, healthy by desire alone. You've got to apply work to that desire. You need effort, grace-fueled effort. And so Paul says this, he says, so I do not run aimlessly and I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, look, I'm not trying to earn my salvation and it's not that I have some negative, you know, stoic view of the body. He says, but I have been saved and God's given me a mission and how ironic would that be if, if I preach to other people's people's people and lost my own sanctification. And so he says, I discipline my body. I'm working incredibly hard. And I have accountability in my life. And I'm being careful what I listen to and watch. And I'm working. So self-control, what is it? This is uh, self-command. It is what gives you true freedom. And how do you get it? You get it by getting a vision, the right vision, an eternal vision a vision that is burned and is vivid to your senses, and then applying effort to that vision so that you actually begin to become more and more ordered in your desires. And then finally, let's look at the last thing, which is how do we get this? How do we get it? Paul assumes something here. He says, I, I, I'm doing all of these things. I'm, I'm disciplining my body, and I'm self-control. He's assuming that he's got power to do this. And if you're a Christian... You have got enormous power for self-control. This is the point of the series. The point of the series is that Jesus doesn't say, look, I died for you, now you go out and live for me. The point of life in the Spirit is that you have enormous power, you have enormous resources at your disposal to live a self-controlled life. And I've been saying this all the way through the series, but there's this quote by Bishop William Temple. He said, it's no use giving me a play like Shakespeare and telling me to write plays like that. Shakespeare could do it, but I can't. And it's no use giving me a life like Jesus, a self-controlled life, and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. You have power inside. You have resources at your disposal to control your impulses. It's not just you. And so Paul would write to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, you're having so much trouble controlling your fear. You're governed by fear, Timothy. But listen, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. God has given you a spirit of self-control so that in that moment, oh, you've got to work at it. You've got to get the vision and get the right thing in your brain so that it's vivid, but there's power that's going to meet you there. And so you need to understand the power you have, and then second of all, you need to understand your identity. Notice Paul here is disciplining his body and he's running this race, but he's not running in order to earn salvation. That's already been earned for him because of what Jesus did. He's running from the standpoint of salvation. He's not running to get an identity to show himself that he's not a bum. He's running from a standpoint of his new identity. He's already saved. 
He's already forgiven. And you are already saved, you are already forgiven. And when you wake up tomorrow and you fail, God will forgive you. And so you are not running and disciplining yourself to earn. You've, the salvation's already been earned. And you've already been given an f- identity as a free gift. And God says, look, Jesus Christ died for you and he's forgiven you and he's made you who you are. And he's given you a mission and a purpose in life. And so now I want you from that identity, from the gospel, to apply the power and to get the right object of worship so that you run the, the race. So let me ask you, where in your life do you need self-control this morning? Where has that vision, the, the vision for why you're here, become faded? Where do you need to put God's purpose for your life on video, on Technicolor? Self-control in all things. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this little passage. It gives us a vivid picture of what self-control looks like. And, And God, you show us that, Lord, uh, the Christian life is, the life of a disciple is one of self-discipline. And God, you give us the power by your Holy Spirit to uh, enable us, God, to live a life, Lord, God, where we're saying no to the immediate and saying yes to the important. And Father, I pray that you give all of us a tremendous sense of vision this morning. God, help us to remember why we're here. God, remind us of our purpose. Remind us of the people you've created us to be. And Father, I pray that that vision would order all the rest of our impulses and all the rest of our lesser desires and that we might develop freedom, the freedom of self-command. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.